listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, we're publishing this episode two days before the U.S. observes the Thanksgiving holiday. We're aware that this day can bring up a lot of emotions, emotions connected to individual grief, but also to the collective grief of communities for whom this day is a reminder of violence, oppression, and discrimination. In the grief world, there can be an overarching assumption that this holiday is tough for those in grief because of a specific person or people not being there for family traditions. We want to acknowledge, though, that for those who don't celebrate this holiday, Being left out of the conversation about what the day does or doesn't mean can amplify the sense of isolation, isolation that so often comes with grief. We definitely don't have any answers or words to repair this disconnect. We just hope that wherever you are in your grief, individually and as a community, that you find some sense of connection here at Grief Out Loud. Okay, here's the show. Imagine being in your early 20s happily single and figuring out how to live life as an adult. And then you meet someone who walks in the world so differently from you. Despite this difference, you feel an immediate and deep draw to them. And luckily, they feel the same way towards you. It's the stuff of rom-coms, right? That's what it was like for Naomi when she met Chad. Their relationship took off quickly and included getting engaged less than a year after meeting. Then, just a few months before their wedding, Chad died in a skateboarding accident. In this situation, grief could go in a lot of different directions. And for Naomi, it took the course of being pushed aside. She tried to just keep doing her life, acting as if everything was normal when it most definitely wasn't. Then, eight months later, the dam broke, and her grief came rushing out. This shift forced Naomi to change up her life. She moved closer to friends and family and found the support that she didn't even really know she needed. Through this process of engaging with her grief, Naomi discovered that her way of honoring Chad was to try and live her life the way that he did, present, eager, and open to new experiences. So Naomi, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. Thanks for having me. And listeners out there, you may hear a little clinking or a little whining. That is Naomi's dog in the background. Just She felt like she wanted to be part of the show today, too. <laughs> uh, Naomi, tell me a little bit about Chad. How did the two of you meet and what was your relationship like? Yeah, so both of us met after college. Our lifelong best friends had been dating for a while, and both of us were like, very stubborn and obstinate that we didn't need a partner or a relationship. But after a while, we gave in. So I listened to my friend and I was like, okay, fine, you can set me up. We we met and hit it off right away. So it was just an instant connection. And how long did the two of you, how long were you together before Chad died? 
just over a year. We were engaged after only 10 or 11 months of dating. Um, and then he died like three months before our wedding. Um, so it was only like a year and a half or so that we were together. And you had everything planned and ready to go for the wedding? We had everything kind of figured out. We were both <laughs> very spontaneous people. We didn't, we didn't like a lot of the details, so we didn't <laughs> want to do all that hard work. Um, but we had the, the main stuff figured out. And yeah, we just wanted to let the, the rest sort itself out. You had the concept together. Yep. We were like a few amount of people, a nice keg of wine, a nice keg of beer, and everyone will have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and then Chad died really late at night, like almost into the next early morning. How did you get the news? I didn't find out until the next day. And it was weird. I woke up and I felt like I just felt so sick and I felt worried and I felt dark for some reason. And I just, I couldn't place it. And I was texting him over and over again. And I was like, hey, you know, you never responded last night. Like what happened? Like what went on? And my, that best friend that had set me up with him, she had driven three or four hours out of the way and just showed up at my front door. I already knew. I just, I just knew. And so she told me and I, I didn't believe it. I had no idea. When I went up to my room to pack to go see his family, I realized that like I hadn't breathed in minutes, you know, mm. um, it was just so bizarre. Yeah. And I realized I had bit through my cheek, my fingernails. I was like, just in a, in a state for sure. You had such physical reactions to it, but you were so confused that you weren't even aware of how your body was responding in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my, it's, I will always be like ashamed of the fact that my very first thought was, well, who's going to cover my shift at work? You know, cause you don't even think practically like that they're gone. That doesn't make sense yet for a long time. And I was just like, well, I have to go to work still. Like, who's going to cover my shift? That can't, I can't just skip work. Yeah, it was very bizarre. I'm grateful for you for sharing that because I know there are so many people, myself included, who when they first hear the news that someone died, that their immediate question or response often is something very like day-to-day -day and mundane because their brain just can't make sense of it yet, like you mentioned. And I think about kids who think, well, who's going to take me to school or who's going to pick me up after soccer practice or a teenager who's like, well, is this going to interfere with my football game that I have tonight? And then there can be so much guilt and shame afterwards when it, it's pretty normal to have that pop into your mind. Yeah, it just doesn't settle in like the gravity of all of it. You just think like, well, what's the very next thing? Do you have a sense of like a timeline of when it started to sink in in a different way for you? Yeah, I I feel like I was in denial for a really long time. I had a week of go see the family, do the funeral, and that was almost a relief in a way because you didn't have anything else to do except for mourn. You didn't have to think about who's going to feed me, how am I going to make money, you're just processing. But then after that week, I went back to work and I pretended like nothing happened at all. And it was probably very unhealthy because eight months later, I went to see his grave on his birthday. 
it all hit me at once a full eight months after. And I was like, I, I can't do this by myself. I need to be around, you know, people that will let me just be sad for a little bit. Um, so it took that long, I think, to actually set in that he's not coming back. Yeah, and so for those eight months where you just were going to work and doing day-to-day stuff, and how, how did you share with other people, if at all, that Chad had died? I avoided it in a big part. Obviously, people knew and wanted to give their condolences and whatever, but I would just kind of shrug it off and be like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Nothing (laughs) has changed, even though everything has changed. Mm. But yeah, I just I didn't want to talk to people because I didn't think that anybody would possibly understand. Yeah, like no one's going to get this. So what's the point of trying to explain it? Yeah. And well, and that's, it's kind of like a sick reality when it's like, oh, you, you open up and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm really hurting and barely functioning. And, you know, obviously because I'm so young, your best friend is like, yeah, my dog was put down when I was like 16. And you're like, that's, I don't think that's really the same thing. And after you feel that disconnect, you don't want to try to do that and put yourself out there with anybody else. It's too much work. Yeah, so you sort of like try it once or twice. You're like, that didn't go so well, so never mind. I'm just going to keep this to myself. Definitely. And and speaking about the things that people say, because they're trying their best and they don't know what else to say. And sometimes people have some very interesting, and, and by interesting, I mean sometimes hurtful, things to say about how somebody dies. And they can use the way that someone dies as a platform to like levy a judgment about whether the death was fitting. Chad died doing something he loved, skateboarding. What did people say to you about that? It's fascinating because I go back and forth about whether I'm so angry about that or whether I'm like, hey, man, good job. You died going out doing what you love. It's something that like very few people understand, but also like anyone who's into any extreme sport, they get it in a certain way. I didn't read any of the obituaries or any of the news articles until you know, eight months or a year after the fact. It's funny because, yeah, everyone has a say about, well, he deserved it. He was being stupid. He wasn't being safe. There, There is a lot of judgment there, definitely. Every time he was like skateboarding or longboarding, he would call me and be like, hey, I'm on my couch. I'm safe. No need to worry. Because I, I definitely, I worried about that. But the more I think about it, I'm like, he lived every single second doing things that made him happy. And he wasn't scared of anything. I'm almost glad that he died the way that he did because he was just enjoying the wind in his face until the last second. Yeah, there's a big difference between you grieving your fiance, coming to an assessment, so to speak, of how he died and what that means versus other people sharing their maybe unsolicited opinion about how he died and what that means or doesn't mean. You mentioned that eight months went by and you were like, I'm just going to get back into my life. I'm going to push it aside as much as I can. And then eight months later, you went to his grave on his birthday and it all comes tumbling out. What did grief look like for you after that eight month mark? It was a pretty extreme change. I was living by myself, working by myself, Um, My parents had moved from Pennsylvania to Wyoming, 
I was like, wow, that's like the Bermuda Triangle of the United States, you know? I'll see you every other year. I don't know. But after seeing his grave and all of that sinking in, I wanted a support network. Not people that might understand right away, but people that are willing to try to understand. The next week, I quit my job. I packed up my little car and my cat, and I drove three days west, and I was like, all right, I'm... You know, I'm going to let other people help me and let other people take care of me. And what was it like to start receiving that help? That's where you feel like so much support and love. Because people, obviously, they aren't going to understand exactly what you've been through. But just saying like, hey, I want somebody to sit in the dark with me. I want somebody to hold my hand and not tell me that it's going to be okay, but that everything sucks right now. And just getting that from my parents and from my friends, I was like, this is exactly where I need to be. So when you finally were able to open up to that grief, you were met with the type of support that felt really fitting. Yeah, it was wonderful just to have people that would sit there with me and say, hey, we know that you don't want to be dealing with this, but we're here. Even though it's not fun, that doesn't matter. We're on your side. And what was it like to move, you said, to the Bermuda Triangle of Wyoming from Pennsylvania to a place where you didn't have any physical markers or reminders of Chad and your relationship? It's easier and harder at the same time. Um, I think it's easier to move on a little bit and to say, I have a new life and I have new goals and I'm moving on. But a lot of me still misses those reminders every day. And that's why those like physical, you know, pictures and his onesie that he slept in every night, like a total (laughs) nerd, all of those things are really nice to have. You know, I can go back to those places in my mind, but I don't have to deal with the physical feelings of being there over and over again. Yeah, almost like you have a little more choice in the matter. It's like I can pull these things out or I can put them away. I don't necessarily have to drive by them every day on my way to work. Right. Like I can revisit that whenever I want to, but not right now. Yeah. Dreams are something that can be a really big part of grief in the fact that people, some people have them and they are comforting and some people have them and they're terrifying and some people don't have them and they have thoughts and emotions about the fact that they're not having them. What kinds of dreams have you had? Oh, so many. (laughs) Um, I have been really interested in dreams for a long time. Every morning when I would wake up, I would write them down starting in the middle of high school. And so that helps you really remember your dreams more, which can be great or horrible. You know, there were times when I I just wanted to sleep and that's all I wanted to do because he would be there, you know, in all of my dreams. And he would just be like, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? I miss you. It was weird because there was a strong transition of like, he would be alive in all of my dreams and now he knows that he's not anymore. And it, and it's weird. It just, it doesn't, it does and doesn't make sense that now that time has gone on more, he knows that he's not alive in my dreams. And he's like, I'm sorry. I'm, I bailed on you. It's, it's nice to have those, but it can make it really hard to get up sometimes. So it's almost as though you've had an ongoing conversation with him in your dreams of that processing what does it mean that he's not here in the physical realm anymore yeah and it's definitely hard because your dreams feel 
so real, you know, in a picture you're looking at it and you're like, you know that he's gone, but in those dreams, it just feels very real sometimes. Almost like having to reckon with it over and over again. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the hard part for sure. And for some people, there can be some really difficult imagery. That's a part of not only dreams, but grief in general. What's that been like for you? Since, you know, he died longboarding and ran into the side of a car and got hit by a car. It's definitely was very difficult sometimes, like just seeing people in crosswalks or if they weren't in crosswalks, it made it really hard to drive. And like, especially just seeing like any skateboarders, I would just want to scream at them. I'd be like, no, you're all dumb. What are you doing? Stop. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I would get livid to the, and I mean, I have, I, up until, you know, a few months ago, I just didn't want to drive anywhere that there would be pedestrians. I couldn't do it. And, and it makes other people more uncomfortable than it makes me for sure. Um, thinking about like, you know, making jokes about like roadkill or whatever. It's like, that's, that's pretty dark, but you get used to it in some way, just like the way that life happens and then it ends and it's not there, but sometimes it just hits you all at once, you know, especially with how often we all drive, you know, you see roadkill or you see things on the side of the road or somebody not in a crosswalk. It's all the time. Was there anything that you did or tried like in an active way to make it easier to drive or to acclimate to that imagery? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways and places, I would just think about what was the most sensical thing. Like everybody is in a crosswalk or it's daylight or this person's headlights are on. Everything's fine. I tried to talk myself through it and not drive at night or on the highway or like put myself in situations where it would be worse but it was still definitely really difficult. And has that shifted? Are you still like not driving at night, not driving on the highway? I I do a lot better with it now, I think. The thoughts are still there, but it's just not that same punch in the gut. And Chad's brother died almost a year before Chad did. Like it was less than a year, right? Yeah, it was just under a year. And what did you learn about grief from watching Chad go through the death of his brother and that grief? It almost prepared me in a way, not that I had wanted it to. He also died unexpectedly and at a young age. For Chad, I just, I saw so much. I saw every emotion every day. I just wanted to be able to help, but you know, you can't understand it in that personal way quite yet. He did feel so much better when he actually talked about his brother. You know, he seemed so much happier and at peace when he talked through it. It's interesting to hear you say that and in the idea that watching Chad talk about his brother's death and open up about it seemed to be a helpful thing for him. And then after Chad dies, you move into a space of like, I'm going to package that up for a good eight months (laughs) before I talk about (laughs) it. Yeah, you'd think I would learn from that, but it took a little while. So the topic of religion doesn't come up very often on our podcast, even though it can be a really big part of a lot of people's lives and a lot of people's grief. And 
and Chad and his family had a really strong connection to religion, specifically to Christianity. And what's your connection to religion, if any, and, and how has it changed since Chad died? It's such a back and forth, you know, relationship. Um, so I'm a pastor's kid, actually. My family is also like very entrenched in religion and all of that. At times, it's the most challenging, frustrating thing, and it makes you want to tear your hair out. And at other times, it's very comforting. For me, at first, I was just so angry. You feel cheated, especially because it was right before our wedding. I felt like we hadn't even started our life together. And I felt like, why? You know, you don't get those answers. You don't find a reason. You don't wake up someday and be like, oh, you know, it makes sense now. That's, that's, I'm totally fine with it. I think it's also like the relationships that you have with other people and the way that you're able to connect with others and help others through that. You sort of see at least some meaning to it. And you're able to find like, you know what, if there is an afterlife and there is a God, then you know what, Chad can see me and he's cheering me on. It's, it's a comfort and it's also the hardest struggle. It sounds like maybe there's been some wrestling with your faith as well around this experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it changes your perspective on faith and afterlife and God, because I, I had one of my Christian friends that was saying like, well, you know, he's with Jesus now, so it's fine. And I was like, that's not what I need to hear. That's not an answer. That's not helpful. But when I talked to her about that, she was like, you're right. I have no idea. <laughs> like, it's just a very, very different practicality. Once you experience this, you know, your idea of faith is not just like the cookie cutter. Well, I went to, you know, church sometimes and I believe this. It's like, no, it's all more complicated. Yeah, that's something, maybe something in the past that would have appeared to be this like easy comfort to grasp. It kind of like falls apart once it's happening to you. It doesn't feel as solid or as reassuring. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's just so different than you expect it, you know, and it's so much harder and you have to work on your own to figure out what everything means to you and why you're going through this thing called life. You have to find your own reasons. And what were the reasons you found? I, I think because I can help other people and I can connect to other people. And I think Chad is the one who taught me not to be afraid of life. I was so in my shell and introverted. You know, I didn't want to talk too loudly in a record store because I was afraid people would look at me. But I mean, he just was 100% all the time. Watching him do life, I knew that was how I wanted to. And I was like, if I, if I can make it through this missing him, through this grieving, through this intense pain, I can live like he lived. And Naomi, you were 22, about to turn 23 when Chad died. And, and you mentioned earlier, you know, your peer group hadn't experienced, many of them had not experienced such a significant loss. What stands out to you as unique of being that age when your fiance dies? It's so 
difficult because everyone is in such a different place in their life in their 20s. Um, so there's not a lot of focus on the end of life. It's, it's more about finding yourself and finding what you want to do and what you want to be. None of my friends really understood in any practical way. My favorite people to hang out with were like uh, old widows would sometimes come up to me because I lived in a small town and be like, hey, I heard what you've been through. It's been 10, 15 years and I still feel those waves of pain. And those are the people I'm like, you understand, like, let's talk, let's have a coffee. So it definitely changed <laughs> who I wanted to hang out with when I was hurting. So you mentioned like connecting with these folks who got it, who could say, yep, 10 years later, still really missing my person and, and your family and friends who were able to show up and sit with you in the dark and hold your hand and say, this really sucks. What else did you find was helpful for you? Just listening more than anything else. A lot of times people try too hard to understand what you're experiencing. And it's this weird theme that I've picked up on called that I call like the Olympics of pain. And so if I say, yeah, this happened to me and I'm really hurting, somebody else is trying to, they're trying really hard to relate. So they're doing their best and they're saying, hey, I've been through this hard thing too, but it makes the focus unclear and you want to comfort them as well. Um, so just having somebody who listens and is like, hey, I have no idea what that's like, but I'm willing to hear about him and I want to talk about his life. Those are the most helpful conversations that I've had. Yeah, the term that came to mind as you were talking is like one-sided listening, which is not quite accurate, but that idea of listening without then contributing from your own personal experience can be a really helpful thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's where there's always so much give and take in a relationship and you should always be able to both speak and to listen, but figuring out and navigating like when that's the right time or when that's not a good time is it's really you know, it's a hard thing to figure out. Yeah. Sorry, listeners. We don't have an algorithm for you of you <laughs> input into your app 27 seconds into the conversation with this person that I've <laughs> known for four years. And then it spits out a little dee, dee, dee. This is the time and the place where you should share from your own experience. But that would be amazing. <laughs> so Naomi, now that you're reaching like the year and about six month mark since Chad died and what would you most want him to know about you and your life now? Mostly, I just want him to know that I'm trying to really live and actually do that, not with my arms crossed or my head down. I want him to know that I'm living and experiencing everything the best that I can. And I'm trying new things and I'm just, I'm not worrying about what others might think for the first time in my life. And I'm trying to be happy by making other people happy. That's something that I definitely learned from him. Well, it seems like coming onto a podcast show that's going to be broadcast internationally is definitely proof of living out loud a little bit more than you maybe did before. Yeah, I spent a lot of time just shying away from hard things. Just, oh, it's in a box. I don't have to think about it right now. But Chad was the person who made me the most uncomfortable. And that's why I fell in love with him. 
I want to make other people uncomfortable, you know, because it leads to growth and becoming more than who you were yesterday. So that's what I want to do now. Well, thank you, Naomi, for coming on the show and making us all a little uncomfortable with you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It means a lot. And listeners out there, thank you for tuning in and being part of our community. I know in past episodes, you've heard me say we'd love for you to, you know, go onto iTunes and leave us a rating and a review because it helps other people find our show. But it's really about us being able to connect with you. So please reach out. We want to hear from you of what the show means to you. What are the stories and topics that are most meaningful? What are the ones you want to hear about that we're not talking about? Uh, That's how Naomi came to be on the show today. She reached out to us uh, through email. So you can reach us at help at Dougie.org. Or if you leave us a review on iTunes, we will read every word of it and appreciate you connecting with us. So we appreciate you tuning in and we hope you'll join us again next time.